You're listening to Nightmares with Beers. Your hosts, Mark and Blaster. Grab a beer. Prepare for fear. Hello and welcome to Nightmares with Beer. The show that explores the true facts of horror movies with some good old Beer. We're your hosts, Mark and Blaster. Today we're going to talk about the movie The Afflicted. Uh, we'll discuss the true horrors behind the movie and offer listener insight to the actual events. Yeah. So should we do the uh, traditional... Hang on, hang on, it's coming. Fire it up. Oh, there it is. First sip of the day. Oh, man, it goes down so... Once it hits your throat, you can't stop. <laughs> the Afflicted is a 2011 American horror crime film written and directed by Jason Stoddard and starring Kane Hoder and Leslie Easterbrook. It is loosely based on the crimes of Teresa Knorr. Teresa was born in Sacramento, California. Teresa's father, what, what? Jim... Sacramento, California. Did you ask what? No, I said what, what to my homies. Oh. <laughs> I'll start that over. Teresa was born in Sacramento, California. Teresa's father, Jim Cross, worked as an assistant cheesemaker at a local dairy. He eventually saved up enough money to buy a house in Rio Linda, California. In the late 1950s, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which forced him to quit his job. He developed depression and reportedly took uh, his frustrations and anger out on his family. Teresa was very close to her mother and was devastated when she died of congestive heart failure in March 1961, thereafter unable to keep the family home because Jim Cross sold it. Well, Because uh, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, that wasn't very nice. Well, he needed money. Had to buy drugs. Now he's got to get some hospital bills paid to so get his knuckles back to crack him in the fucking jaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, fucking back in the in the nineteen sixties, that's what they done. Man, beat and repeat, man, beat and repeat. Oh my goodness. So on September 29th, nineteen sixty-two, at the age of sixteen, just a youngin, Teresa married Clifford Clyde Sanders, not to be confused with Colonel Sanders. They're not the chicken man? No. And apparently you can't, uh, they dropped that out of their, their slogan, eh? They, they, they dropped the uh, finger looking good during COVID. <laughs> they don't have that as their slogan. It's a true fucking story, man. Really? They did. Yep. Wow. Immediately she dropped out of high school and became pregnant. On July 16th, 1963, she gave birth to her first child, Howard Clyde Sanders. Oh, what a lovely child. The Sanders marriage was rocky as Teresa was possessive and repeatedly accused Sanders of infidelity. Infidelity. On June 22, 1964, Teresa claimed that Saunders had punched her in the face during an argument. Wow, smoked her right in a bean, eh? Teresa reported the incident to the police but refused to press charges against Saunders, so the charges were dropped. On July 6, 1964, the day after Saunders' birthday, the couple were arguing because Saunders had spent the day out with his friends instead of at home. During the argument, Saunders informed Teresa that he was leaving her. Uh, Teresa became enraged and shot Saunders in the back with a rifle as he was walking out the door. 
You think you can trust somebody, eh? And it was on his birthday. Why couldn't he be fucking out with his friends, drinking it up, man? Weren't they young? Like, well, no wonder why he punched her in the head. Knocked her out, man. I'm out with my friends. Leave me alone. Yeah. Teresa was arrested and charged with Sanders' murder, to which she pleaded not guilty, claiming she was acting in some fucking... Like, how? You shot him in the back. That's some self-defense. <laughs> what did he do? Come at you with a beer bottle? I'm hanging out with my friends. Motherfucker, shoot you in the back. Like, the hell? During her trial, Teresa, who was pregnant with her second child, claimed that she had shot Sanders because he was a violent alcoholic who physically abused her. Several of Sanders' relatives testified that Sanders was not violent or abusive, while the prosecution claimed that Teresa killed Sanders maliciously and without provocation. 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 Teresa's older sister also testified, stating that Teresa was possessive and jealous and would kill Saunders before any other woman can have him. She was acquitted of Saunders' murder on September 22, 1964. Then Teresa gave birth to her second child, uh, Sheila Grace Saunders, on March 16, 1965. Great, that's gay. It says gay. Oh, well, it's gay. I wonder how she was acquitted, though. Like, what grounds was she acquitted on? Did they fall for... She shot for... the judge in the back. Maybe. But what grounds was she acquitted on? Like, I'd like to find that out. We should research that in another episode. Like, who just gets acquitted of murder? Not who you know, it's who you blow, right? Oh, maybe. Maybe they fell for that self-defense crap. What the fuck? After Sheila's birth, Teresa became drinking heavenly. Oh, who's the hypocrite now, bitch? Yeah. She so. regularly drank at the local American Legion Hall where she met Estelle Lee Thornsberry. A disabled United States Army veteran. The two began a relationship and eventually moved in together. Oh, yeah. During the relationship, Teresa would routinely leave her children with Thornsbury while she went out drinking. Thornbury began to question Teresa when she stayed out for days at a time and ended the relationship a few months later after he discovered that she was having an affair with his best friend. Shortly after the relationship with Thornberry ended, Teresa met and began a relationship with a United States Marine private named Robert Knorr. She soon became pregnant, and the couple married on July 9th, 1966. She gets around. Yeah, she's marrying everybody. Marrying legs open, dropping out the babies. Yeah, that's a lot of pensions. Well, hey, man, it it kept her out of the trailer park. Or kept them in the trailer park, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, true enough. (laughs) She might drink it all. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> Teresa's third child, Susan Marlin Knorr, was born on September 27, 1966. 6-6-6. The couple had three more children. Teresa and Robert's marriage began to deteriorate after Teresa began accusing her husband of having affairs. There's that shit again. There's that crazy yep. bitch shit again. Bipolar. Fed up with Teresa's constant accusations, Robert left her in June 1969 and was granted a divorce in 1970. Teresa would marry two more times. In 1971, she married a railroad, a railroad worker, um, Ronald Pullum. That marriage began to fall apart when Teresa began leaving her children with Pullum uh, while she stayed out all night drinking and partying. He divorced her in 1972 after he became convinced that she was having an affair. Well, she's a skank. I'd like to know what age she was at this time. In 1972, so take away 1944 with pi equals dot metrics. Plus the leap with, year. With, with the flux capacity. And, uh, <laughs> 464. Her final marriage was Chester Chet Harris, whom she married in August 1976. Her final marriage. That was it. Teresa's daughter Susan grew close to Harris, which made Teresa jealous. 
I want to sleep with Daddy tonight. Oh. She filed for divorce from Harris in November 1976 after she reportedly found out that Harris enjoyed taking consensual nude photographs of women. That's my dream job. Become a fucking a gynecologist. You can look at vaginas all day. You could, you could. I would start a podcast and vagina and beer. <laughs> Teresa was physically, verbally, and psychologically abusive towards her children. After her fourth divorce, her alcoholism and abusive behavior escalated, and she also gained a tremendous amount of weight and became quick-tempered and reclusive. She disconnected the home phone and would not let the children have visitors. Ooh. How did they text? How did, oh, oh, no texting. It was all smoke signals. Smoke signals. <laughs> Or Morse code back then, yeah. Or send out the fucking pigeon carriers. <laughs> Teresa and her children lived in Orangevale, California for many years before moving into a two-bedroom apartment in Sacramento. Teresa's eldest son, Howard, reportedly left home before the move to Sacramento. So he bounced. He, he I'm out of here. He peaced out. I can't out. take this fucking nut job anymore. Peaced the According fuck According to out. neighbors, the apartment was filthy and smelled of urine. Awesome. Pee-pee. Neighbors also noticed that the children whom Teresa never let go outside seemed fearful, nervous, and high-strung. All that coffee. That made her fat. Sugar and fucking cream, man. For years, Teresa abused and tortured her children in various ways, including beating them, force-feeding them, burning them with cigarettes, and throwing knives at them. She made her children hold each other down while they beat and tortured them. In one instance, she held a pistol to her youngest daughter Terry's uh, head and threatened to kill her. Teresa primarily focused her anger and abuse on Terry's older sisters, Susan and Sheila. I wonder why the oldest ones, because she thought they could take it? Well, they thought, but I, you never know what their frame of thought is back in the day, right? Well, wasn't she like seeing, like talking to God and shit, and God told her to do all this stuff? Well, that's, I mean, yeah, she talked to God a lot in the movie, anyways. If you want to get into heaven and have this fucking 40 with me, beat your kids. <laughs> Teresa also believed that her fourth husband, Chet, had turned Susan into a witch. <laughs> Susan received the worst of Teresa's abuse. After one severe beating, Susan ran away from home. She was picked up by police and placed in a psychiatric hospital where she told staff that her mother abused the hell out of her. She did get abused pretty bad, though. Yeah, I mean, apparently... Like, it was, it was brutal. Teresa denied the abuse claims and told the hospital staff that Susan had mental issues. And she was a witch. <laughs> Authorities did not investigate the matter further and released Susan back into her mother's custody. Good job, cops. Yeah, big red flag, big red flag. Teresa punished Susan for running away by beating her while wearing a pair of leather gloves and forced the other children to take turns beating her. Teresa handcuffed Susan to a kitchen table and ordered the other children to stand, to stand watch over her. Teresa refused to let Susan leave the house and forced her uh, to drop out of school. Teresa also pulled the other children out of school, and most of them never advanced past the eighth grade. Oh, yeah, you know, they can still have a chance, you know. Work at McDonald's, custodian work. <laughs> Walmart. <laughs> Greeter. In 1982, Teresa became convinced that Susan was casting spells on her to cause her to gain weight. Susan denied doing so, but Teresa became angry and told Terry, the youngest, to shoot Susan in the stomach with a 22 caliber pistol if she moved. The bullet became lodged in her back, but Teresa refused to allow Susan to seek medical attention and left her for dead in the family bathtub. Just have a, have a bath. It'll, it'll come out. Don't worry. It'll be fine. <laughs> Teresa began to nurse her back to health and allowed her daughters to aid Susan as well. Susan eventually recovered without receiving professional medical treatment. In July of 1984, Teresa and Susan got into another argument 
during which Teresa stabbed her daughter in the back with a pair of scissors. Teresa again refused Susan medical treatment. A few weeks after the stab and Susan, fed up with the abuse, decided to move to Alaska. Teresa agreed to let her go under the condition that Susan allowed her to remove the bullet from her back so it could not be used for evidence in the event that Susan reported the abuse. Susan reluctantly d- agreed. Yeah, let her off. Well, they had to get that damn bullet out of her back, though. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, in the movie, they got the bullet out of her, too, right? Was it the shoulder in the movie, though? Um, Yeah, I think it was a shoulder or whatever. I think it went through to the back, though, remember? It looked like it went right through almost or something. It was a hard watch, man. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Teresa gave Susan capsules and liquor as an anesthetic, which caused Susan to pass out. While Susan was unconscious, Teresa ordered her then 15-year-old son, Robert, to remove the bullet with an X-Acto knife. Susan awoke the following day in immense pain. Over the following day, she developed sepsis and became delirious. Teresa attempted to treat her with ibuprofen and antibiotics. The treatments were ineffective, and Susan's condition continued to decline. That's horrible. Oh, shit, eh? Yeah, they were malari malari capsules and liquor, eh? That's, uh... Malari capsules? Yeah, I don't even think they have those in the market anymore. That's crazy. What are they for, malaria? I don't know. Probably not. I want some. I want some. (laughs) On July 16, 1984, Teresa packed all of Susan's belongings in a trash bag. After binding Susan's arms and legs and placing duct tape over her mouth, she ordered her sons Robert and William to put Susan in their car. They drove her to the Squaw Valley, where Robert and William placed her on the side of the road on top of the bags containing her belongings. They then doused Susan and the bags in gasoline and lit her on fire. Susan's still smoldering body was found the following day. An autopsy determined that she was still alive when they lit her on fire. Due to the state of the remains, the positive identification was never made, and Susan was classified as Jane Doe, number 4873-84. There's that many Jane Doe's, is it 84 or 4,873? Couldn't tell you. (laughs) That's a fucking huge number of people that (laughs) are like... That's crazy, man. Do your job, coppers. No wonder you're fucking up. (laughs) Following Susan's death, Teresa began directing the majority of her anger and abuse towards her daughter, Sheila. In uh, 1985 May, Teresa forced Sheila into prostitution to support the family. Teresa did not work and received money from the state of California. Teresa was initially pleased with this arrangement due to the large amounts of money Sheila was earning and allowed Sheila to leave the house whenever she pleased. (laughs) Uh, It seems that she just needed somebody to, to... To pick on, to abuse. And get her alcohol. They had already disposed of the one sister, and now they're putting the uh, anger towards uh, Sheila. That's crazy. The next in line, I guess, right? So after a few weeks, uh, Teresa became angry and accused Sheila of being pregnant and contracting a sexually transmitted disease, which Teresa claimed she had caught from Sheila via the toilet seat. Sheila denied the accusations. So Teresa beat her, hogtied her, and locked her in a closet with no ventilation. Teresa forbade her other children to give Sheila food, water, or open the door to the closet. Terry disobeyed her mother and gave Sheila a beer. I hope it was a good beer at least. You know, the last beer, you want it to be something that's not piss and not warm. Get it out of the fridge. Have respect. Probably a half-drinking beer. Terry later said she wanted Sheila to confess. That was mother's way. Beat them until they confess. (laughs) 
To end the punishment, Sheila confessed to being pregnant and having an STD. Patricia would still not let her out of the closet, claiming that Sheila was lying. Lying. Sheila died three days later on June 21st, 1985, of dehydration and starvation. Sounds like a fucking death metal song. <laughs> yeah. Teresa left Sheila's body in the closet for an additional three days before discovering that Sheila was dead. Three days. Oh, that had to stink, man. Three fucking <laughs> days. Man. Once again, Teresa ordered her son William and Robert to dispose of Sheila's body, which had begun to decompose, uh, causing an odorous smell that filled the apartment. The boys placed Sheila's body in a cardboard box, which, which they disposed of near an airport in Truckee, California. Sheila's body was discovered a few hours after it was disposed of, but it was never properly identified, and it was classified as Jane Doe number 6607-85. Even though Sheila's body had removed from the closet, the smell of the decomposing body lingered in the apartment. Teresa became concerned that the smell and physical evidence in the closet could implicate her in Sheila's death. No shit. On September 29, 1986, Teresa moved the family's belongings out of the home and ordered her youngest daughter, Terry, to burn down the apartment in an effort to destroy any physical evidence. During the night, Terry Knorr dumped three containers of lighter fluid on the apartment floor and set it on fire. The fire did little damage as the neighbors quickly reported the fire before it spread. The closet in which Sheila died was not damaged. After Teresa's arrest, investigators were able to remove the subfloor from the closet and it test uh, and test it for physical evidence. Ooh. She got fucked there. So we should say um, we should we should let everyone know that this isn't the typical um, nightmares with beers podcast. Um, normally we have stuff going on about exorcisms and ghosts and the paranormal activity stuff. You know, based on whatever movie it is. This, I guess, would be considered a horror thriller movie. Yeah. So, it, like a horror crime. Yeah, and it's based on a true story. So, I mean, to watch this movie, myself personally, I thought it was pretty horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm classifying it as a horror movie. It's pretty horrible. <laughs> <laughs> After leaving the Sacramento apartment, Teresa went into hiding. Her surviving children, who were by then of legal age, severed their ties with their mother. About time. Teresa's youngest child, 16-year-old Terry, also escaped her mother's care and used Sheila's identification card to pass herself off as a legal adult. The only child to remain with Teresa was Robert Jr., who was then 19 years old. Teresa and Robert Jr. moved to Las Vegas and attempted to keep a low profile. In November 1991, Robert Knorr Jr. was arrested after he fatally shot a bartender in a Las Vegas bar during an attempted robbery. Good one, buddy. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Shortly after Robert Jr.'s arrest, Teresa left Las Vegas and relocated to Salt Lake City. After escaping from her mother, Terry Knorr attempted to report her sister's murders to the Utah police, but they dismissed her stories as fiction as did a therapist she visited. No one wants to listen. It's crazy, eh? You tell some people, why wouldn't they listen to her? Like, on what grounds would they not listen to her? Wasn't she a witch? Just, they, th- thought she, <laughs> they thought she was just nuts. So on October 28, 1993, Terry Knorr con- uh, contacted the Americans Most Wanted, who asked her to contact detectives in uh, Placer County, California, the county which Susan's body was found, who took her claim seriously and followed up with the investigation. The detectives linked the two Jane Doe's found in the area in 1984 and 1985 to Terry Knorr's detailed stories of her sister's death and concluded that she was telling the truth. 
There you go. Teresa's son, William, was arrested on November 4th, 1993 in Woodland, California, where he had been living and working. Just, you know, just you know, regularly doing his shit, you know, living and working. Nothing happened. Robert Nord Jr. was charged with the sister's murders while he was serving a 16-year sentence in Eli, Nevada prison for the 1991 murder of a Las Vegas bartender. On November 10th, 1993, Teresa Nord was arrested at her home in Salt Lake City. At the time of her arrest, Teresa Nord was using her maiden name of Cross and was working as a caretaker for her landlord's 86-year-old mother. Yeah, not the kind of person I'd want to leave with my uh, elderly parents, that's for sure. Now she's got a job. Before she was living off the state and her kids. Now she's got a job. Desperate times. On November 15th, 1993, Teresa was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstance charges. Multiple murder and murder by torture. Ooh, two of them. Teresa initially pleaded not guilty, but then made a deal with the prosecution after learning that her son, Robert Jr., agreed to testify against her in exchange for a reduced sentence. Fuck you, Mom! Oh... Like, snitched. Snitched yeah. on her. Snitches get stitches. Stool she, pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> she pleaded guilty on the condition that she would be spared the death penalty. On October 17, 1995, into the 90s now, Teresa was sentenced yep. to two consecutive life sentences. She is incarcerated at California Institution for Women in Chino, California. She will be eligible for parole in 2027. Ugh. William Nor was sentenced to probation in order to undergo therapy for participating in his sister Susan's murder. In exchange for his testimony, the prosecution dropped all charges against Robert Nord Jr., except for uh, one account uh, of accessory after the fact in relations to Sheila's murder. Robert Nord Jr. pled guilty to the charges and was sentenced to three years in prison, which, will, which is being served currently, with a 16-year sentence of the unrelated 1991 murder of a Las Vegas bartender. So he's serving 19 years in total for the bartender murder and for his sister's murder. So he'll be close to 40 or over 40 when he gets out. Following Teresa's arrest, police decided to reopen the murder case of her sister, Rosemary Norris. Norris was found strangled at the end of a dead-end road in Placer County in 1983 after she went grocery shopping in Sacramento. Just going out for some, uh, you know, some butter and milk and bread. Now I'm dead. Police later determined that Teresa was not involved in Norris's death. So after killing two kids... Her own kids, they just decided that she wasn't involved in her sister's death? Well, she loved her sister. Oh, yeah. After running away from her mother's home, Terry Knorr married twice and eventually moved to Sandy, Utah, where she lived with her uh, second husband. Oh, the kids are following suit with all these marriages, eh? She worked as a grocery store uh, cashier in the same neighborhood where her mother also lived and worked before her arrest. Um... Teresa and Terry apparently did not know they lived close to each other and had no contact. Terry Nord died in 2011 at the age of 41 of heart failure. Damn. That's young. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's... that's, I wonder if her, you know, her having a heart attack, I wonder if her, you know, upbringing contributed to that. (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? We never know. Maybe they have fucking predisposition to sickness. I don't. Th- oh, was COVID there? Was COVID back then? <laughs> Everything. Everybody dies nowadays. Fuck COVID. COVID forty two. Car accident. COVID. The movie is loosely based on the Teresa Nor case. The film follows the real life events through a substantially compressed timeline. Unlike the real case, the movie ends with the youngest daughter killing her mother and one of her brothers before committing suicide. One of her brothers. She only had one brother in the movie, I think, didn't she? Yeah. 
There was only one From what I remember, anyways. Yeah, there was only yeah. one brother. So if no one out there listening has watched this movie, I I, I would recommend it. It's a good watch. It's very disturbing. It personally, my feeling to the movie, it made me mad, made me angry. Um, but it was well done considering the true facts uh, with a bit of a fictional ending because, I mean, in the movie, again, as uh, it was already mentioned, she committed suicide after shooting her mother and brother, but that was about the only fictitious part in the movie that I can recall. But it's also known as another American crime. So I also read, too, that when she when she um, handcuffed her to the table and also when they, they left her laying on the floor, they had to put a diaper on her. They put a diaper on her because she needed to go to the bathroom. So they kept her in a diaper. So, I'm, I mean, that just... That just says that they kept her there for a lot longer than what this, these notes made out to be. Because at the crime scene, they found a diaper, and they wasn't they weren't sure at first why there was a diaper, and then they pieced it together after mm. that there was a diaper on the victim. Imagine going through that shit, man, from your mother. That's the part that gets me. I know it's horrible. We should uh, read some of these receptions from the movie. That you got some there in front of you. Yeah, so let's hear some. Leslie Easterbrook's acting was praised by Eight Ain't Cool News, which concluded its review of the film with, The Afflicted is not for everyone, but stands out for its bold performances and its ability to burrow into the viewer's brain pan. <laughs> oh, it did for me. It was it was horrible. I, I watched it, and all I wanted to do was grab that mother by the fucking hair and smack her head on the ground a few times. Yeah. And I don't hit yeah, people. Exactly. I mean, but that's just, that's, that, that drew it out to you in that movie. Uh, yeah, I was so angry. The Afflicted, a final score, four out of five, while opening that it captures the very real horror in a way that is more heart-wrenching and explorative. And then the bad review was a one out of four, called The Afflicted unwatchable and a complete mess, before ending its review of the film with, I hate to be heavy-handed, but this is just a bad film. I have nothing good to say about it. The acting is histronic, the characters lacking any depth or nuance, and the pacing very poor. Wow. Well, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I thought the, the film itself was, was made well. But it uh, it really is not for everyone. It's it's you really got to have a stomach to watch this film, and you know it's weird they say it was starring Kane Hodder because it really wasn't. He was in the movie for twenty minutes, not even. Yeah, exactly. You know, just to and uh, put his name on it yeah, so they can get get it out there. If yeah, if I was to give that movie a review, I think it would be a good review. Um, again, it pretty much nailed it as far as the true story goes, except for the ending was, was not the, the truth, but I mean, it is, you know, I wouldn't even say loosely. It was pretty, pretty accurate from what we've researched on the true events. Yeah. It's like, again, you said it, it's not for everybody. So there's going to be people that like it and people that don't like it as with everything. Exactly. I, 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 I thought it wasn't that bad. It was just a hard watch, man. Putting yourself into those kids and then doing that shit. From your fucking mother, like you're supposed to trust this person, and there's people well, exactly. like that around the world, man. That's the freaky part. And to think she she had her daughter set on fire while she was still alive, that's a horrible thought. I mean, what a way to go. I guess that concludes this episode of Nightmares with Beer. And um, again, like uh, we've mentioned in all the other episodes, if you guys have a, a true story of your own, you want to share it, feel free to drop us an email at nightmareswithbeer at gmail you can also uh, hit the link at our uh, at our Facebook page to leave a voice message, which is preferred, because if your message uh, 
I mean, you can tell your story right there if you want to, and we can contact you and have you on the show or maybe just air your message, um, provided it's, uh, you know, if it's something that we're doing. Well, thanks for listening, people. Peace. Peace.